from NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. This week, former President Donald Trump asks Texas to conduct an audit of the 2020 election, officials work to move migrants out of Del Rio, and the Texas legislature continues its work on redistricting. Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers are joined by State Senator Beverly Powell, State Rep Eddie Morales, Michael Lee of the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program, and Dallas Attorney Eric Cedillo. Before we get started, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the Lone Star Politics Podcast. It helps us grow the show and helps others find it. Late Thursday, the Texas Secretary of State's office announced it would launch a, quote, full forensic audit of the 2020 election at the request of former President Donald Trump. Trump sent Texas Governor Greg Abbott a letter to ask the audit be added to the agenda of the special legislative session. Trump won the state of Texas by more than five percentage points in the 2020 election, the smallest margin by a Republican candidate in decades. And there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Four counties will be included in the initial audit, Collin, Dallas, Harris, and Tarrant counties. Trump has falsely claimed that voter fraud and irregularities cost him electoral votes in Arizona, where results of an audit increased President Joe Biden's margin of victory. Also in Austin this month, the legislature is convening for a third special session of the year where they will address redistricting. One of the maps released so far is of proposed state Senate districts. State Senator Beverly Powell of Burleson represents District 10, which now includes most of Southern and a small part of Northeast Tarrant County. The proposed map would move that district south and west into large parts of Johnson and Parker counties. Here's Senator Powell with Julian Gromer. State Senator Beverly Powell joins us this morning. Thanks for being here, Senator. Well, thank you so much, Gromer, and thank you, Julie, for having me on today. Let's start with your reaction to the elections audit. Well, I think it's just a little bit more of Texas absurdity based on the big lie. And of course, it is an assault on our urban areas and on our minority voters. So of course, I think that um, this is just some more of the culture war legislation that we've been attending to this entire uh, legislative session, both from the beginning uh, in January to this third session on redistricting. I don't know what's left, Senator, but you, do you expect more legislation, uh, sort of this Trump-style legislation uh, in Texas, or are we through with it right now? Well, certainly, the if the past is any predictor of the future, I think we are not nearly done with it. Um, there are 20 days left to go in this legislative session or so, and I would expect that we are going to see some more. Let's turn now to redistricting. Your district changes substantially if this map stands. What is the best path for you forward in the Republican-controlled Senate? You know, um, we are just now beginning the redistricting hearings during this legislative session. And in fact, I came uh, from the Senate floor to be with you all today. And we are, uh, we are going to launch some robust effort to fight against this Senate district. If you notice last night, there's a new map that was dropped last night at nine o'clock. So uh, we are trying to wrap our arms around the impact of that map and uh, we're prepared to fight this as far as we need to fight it. Now, Senator, you are in, you're in one of the fast growing areas. You have said that these maps discriminate against minority residents in your district. Can you explain briefly why that why why the maps are discriminatory in your view? 
Absolutely, I can. Um, I was elected by a coalition of black, brown, and Asian voters, uh, and with the crossover vote of some Anglo population. Um, what this new map does is crack out the largest portion of the African-American and Hispanic vote and packs this district into largely Anglo areas. Um, originally, the map that was released showed uh, Johnson County and all of Parker County packed into our district. And now that district stretches all the way to some of uh, Senator Parody, Perry's territory in West Texas and all the way down into Brown County. Those are rural uh, districts that are made up of largely Anglo voters who have little in common with our minority populations here in Tarrant County. No. And in fact, more broadly, I believe that it disenfranchises all of the minority voters across both Senate Districts 9 and 10 as they are proposed. Republicans had a similar effort when the district was represented by then-Senator Wendy Davis. Those maps were rejected in federal courts. Do you think there will be a case this time around? Absolutely. Absolutely, I do. If these maps stand, um, you can rest assured that we'll be taking every effort necessary to make sure that we preserve uh, Senate District 10 for strong leadership in Tarrant County. So, Senator, how much does, does the lack of a strong pre-clearance requirement, how much will that hurt your ability to seek a, a legal remedy? Well, I think certainly it does get in our way. But at the end of the day, um, this this map is clearly an absurd uh, disenfranchisement of our voters. And I believe that the court systems will see that. Before we let you go, the legislature has to dole out 16 billion federal dollars for COVID relief. Where should that money go? You know, I think we have to begin by protecting our children in their school environment. Uh, we need to begin with, uh, with both testing and vaccines for those students who are, um, are who are um, of age to get those vaccines. We also need to be sure that we have strong contact tracing and isolation in place to protect populations of our students, to protect our teachers, and then ultimately we have to do everything we can to protect our healthcare workers and make sure that our hospitals can manage. Um, the patients who come to them with so many uh, problems for their, from their illnesses and COVID. This is, this is a startling mismanagement of the pandemic, I do believe. State Senator Beverly Powell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Gromer. Appreciate you having me today. So now that we've heard from a lawmaker who could be impacted by redistricting, let's dive a little deeper into what it is and how it will impact Texans. Texas will get two more seats in the U.S. House of Representatives after its population grew by nearly 4 million residents over the last 10 years. Michael Lee is senior counsel for the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. He focuses on redistricting, voting rights, and elections. Before moving to the Brennan Center, Lee practiced law in Dallas and got his undergraduate degree at the University of Texas. He explains to Julian Gromer what the process is and how it could affect the state. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to do it. 
Redistricting is something we talk frequently about, but there's a lot that goes into it. So break it down to a level that everybody can understand how it works. So redistricting is a process that takes place every 10 years. And the, the base purpose of redistricting is to make sure that districts are more or less evenly populated, which is a requirement of the Constitution. And in the process of doing that, um, states will also make sure that they're complying with all other applicable laws like the Voting Rights Act. Um, but unfortunately, um, because the process is a political one in most states, it's also a chance for map drawers to sort of put their thumb on the scale and to sort of redesign districts in a way that benefits them individually or benefits their party or that discriminates against um, minority voters. And so, you know, it's it, the purpose of redistricting is, is a good one. It's one that's required under the Constitution, but it's also opening a can of worms in a lot of in a, in a, in a lot of cases because, um, you know, it's a chance to, um, you know, fix election results really for the whole decade because we won't, again, draw maps until uh, after the next census in 2030. So essentially, as long as it stays within population numbers, like an area has to have X amount of population, it's really up to the party in control to make the decisions on what the map looks like. Well, in a state like Texas, that's certainly the case because one party, you know, Republicans control both houses of the legislature and um, they also control the governor's uh, mansion. And so they can really, you know, do whatever they want. It would be a little bit different if Democrats had won the, the state house because then there would be divided government and the parties would have to compromise on maps. But they, that's not the case uh, this decade. It wasn't the case last decade. And so really, you know, there's a lot of freedom. There aren't a lot of rules in the Texas Constitution constraining how maps are drawn, particularly for congressional districts and state Senate districts, but even for state House districts. But, you know, there are some uh, big constraints in federal law. Um, you know, the, you, you can't intentionally discriminate um, under the Constitution. You also have to comply with the Voting Rights Act, which may require you to create minority opportunity districts in some cases if the conditions are right on the ground. Michael, may I say, I, I'm happy to report that you look almost exactly the same as you did during your Dallas days, man. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's good to know. I, I think I, the last redistricting cycle gave me some gray hairs, but uh, maybe you can't see them on the cameras. So that's uh, good. <laughs> hey, let, let's talk about those federal laws because, and, and the difference between drawing maps uh, to give you a political advantage, but how you may run a file if that impacts the Voting Rights Act and, and is deemed intentionally discriminatory, because quite frankly, every map Texas has drawn through the years has had some sort of federal problem. So uh, walk us through that. And is there a, an a impact of the pre-clearance requirement that the Supreme Court struck down in 2013? What impact does that have on the redistricting process? So, uh, you know, under the voting, uh, well, under the Constitution, you know, states can't discriminate against racial or ethnic minorities. And, you know, Texas has in the past, including last decade, been found to have done exactly that, to sort of, you know, you know deliberately drawn lines to dilute the votes of black and Latino voters in particular. Um, but then, you know, the Voting Rights Act, even if there's no intentional discrimination, sometimes requires you to draw minority opportunity districts if the conditions are right. If there's racially polarized voting, if, if minority voters really couldn't win um, a seat at the table um, otherwise. And so if, if sort of this very nuanced analysis says that you need to draw a district in a certain part of the state, then you, you might have an obligation to, for, for example, create a Latino congressional district in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, because otherwise, you know, you'll never have a Latino preferred candidate win. And so, um, you know, those are sort of the, the key parts of the Voting Rights Act. One part of the Voting Rights Act 
that's not there this time, which you mentioned is Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which used to require states like Texas that had a history of discriminating against um, racial and ethnic minorities to get redistricting plans and other election law changes pre-approved before putting them into effect. And the Supreme Court has said that the formula used to determine what states was covered was outdated and it was up for Congress to create a new formula. Congress has yet to do that. And so this cycle, right now at least, it looks like maps will be drawn without that requirement. And so um, that that creates a number of, of, of problems. One is that, um, you know, there, Texas no longer has a, an urgency to finish maps. Um, it also means that, you know, while maps can still um, uh, be challenged in court, um, you know, the burden is on plaintiffs, right? It used to be the burden was on the state to prove that a map wasn't discriminatory. Now it's on the on private plaintiffs to prove that it is. I mean, that's that's time-consuming, expensive litigation, and so the likelihood is that some, at least some bad maps will be allowed to be used for 2022, maybe 2024, be, before they get fixed in litigation. Yeah. Um, Michael, you know, redistricting can be a boring topic, not to geeks like us, but why should people I care? beg your pardon. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> but, uh, all right, Julie aside, why should people I'm care? I'm a plen plenty geek here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why should people care? Well, yeah. you know, like, um, you know, we have elections every two years that determines who holds power. Um, but redistricting really is an opportunity for people to to set the, the, you know, set what happens for the whole of the decade, what representation looks like for the whole of the decade, because again, maps won't be redrawn again um, until 2031, unless they get struck down by court, in which case they might get redrawn. But, but you know, they're, you know, if all things go right, then you don't redraw maps again until 2031. And, you know, what we saw last decade was, you know, some really aggressive gerrymandering um, in states like Ohio, which produced a map that had 12 Republicans and four Democrats in a state that's pretty much 50-50. North Carolina had a, a 10 Republican, three Democratic uh, Democrat map, uh, again, in a state that's 50-50. And those were so durable that, you know, uh, Democrats would only win about a quarter of the seats, despite the fact that they routinely win a quarter or, or about half the vote. And so, you know, that's what gerrymandering and redistricting can do. And it's important to mention that in places like Texas and in southern states, because there is polarized voting along racial lines, you know, when you're discriminating on the basis of party, you're discriminating against communities of color, right? You can't really draw an effective gerrymander in states like Texas without discriminating against Latino and black voters and Asian voters. And so really what you're doing is you're setting back minority power for the, the course of a decade. And last decade, um, you know, people of color provided 95 percent of the state's population gain, and yet they could be disadvantaged when, when lines are drawn. And I think also important to point out here, too, is sometimes you see people in the same party fighting over certain areas. You do. I mean, you know, like redistricting, um, you know, there's a big concern that people have about redistricting, which is, you know, how does my party do? You know, how does are the maps racially fair? But there's also a lot of parochial concerns that come up in redistricting. Like I want, you know, uh, you know, my district to look a particular way because it'll help me electorally or sometimes just because you want it that way. Like, you know, last decade we saw. Um, it, it came out in litigation that, you know, um, you know, one congressman asked for the San Antonio Country Club to be drawn into his district. Another asked for Hockaday School in, in North Dallas to be drawn into his district, you know, for, for no political reason other than, you know, they had some personal affinity for those places and wanted th those choices to be made. So, like, you know, there is um, politics big and small when it comes to redistricting. Yeah. Uh, one last question. You, you talked about 
the 10-year process. In Texas, you notice, remember in 2008, Democrats came within two seats of taking the Texas House, but in 10, they got swamped. Last time, in 2018, um, they made they gains. Up like, what, they picked like up what, like nine 12, seats, 12 right? Seats. 12 seats. And then in, in, uh, last year, you know, they, they regressed. These elections are important, right, particularly in the cycle before redistricting. Yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. You know, like Democrats, you know, um, had a shot, at, you know, like a, in, a, in a big way, um, you know, both, both of the last two decades to sort of win a seat at the table. But because they got shut out, um, you know, Republicans would be once again in the driver's seat making all of the decisions. And last decade, they were very aggressive. There already are signs that they will be very aggressive. This decade, for example, in Senate District 10 in Fort Worth, um, which is, you know, a minority majority district now, it's right. only about 39% white, um, you know, they, they are dismantling it and adding in a bunch of rural voters. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate you. Yeah, glad to do it. And Michael Lee is a great resource for redistricting news and analysis. You can follow him on Twitter at MCP Lee. Let's turn now to the border, where a group of migrants camped in Del Rio was moved out of the area Friday. At one point, more than 14,000 Haitian migrants were there. Governor Abbott has criticized the Biden administration over its immigration policy. We'll hear from the governor before we hear from Texas Representative Eddie Morales of Eagle Pass. He serves the state's 74th House District, which includes all of Del Rio. What the world is witnessing now is the open border policies that are being utilized by the Biden administration. It attracts people from across the entire globe, including people coming from more than 150 different countries. Because the Biden administration is doing nothing to secure our border, because the Biden administration has been promoting and allowing open border policies, it has been the state of Texas that had to step up and address this challenge and work with the local mayor, the, the local county judge, and the local sheriff. Joining us this morning, State Representative Eddie Morales from the border town of Del Rio. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. There were literally thousands of people living under a bridge, most, if not all, expected to be cleared out by the end of the weekend. But what needs to be done to handle these surges at the border? There's a number of factors that need to take place. First, I'd like to report that we just received word not even five minutes ago that all migrants now under the bridge have been removed. They're clearing also all of the debris that was left over and, and cleaning the, the property that rightfully belongs. Uh, there's some property that belongs to the city of Del Rio and also some of the property is federal property. But we need to look at the, the origins of this. I mean, we were told not only by the military, but also some uh, uh, government um, studies as well as private studies that these climatic events that were taking place and that they were being becoming more and more common were gonna lead to displacement and to refugees. And that's exactly what we're seeing. These folks, we had an opportunity to visit with them. The folks from Haiti, from Haiti, I'm sorry, uh, um, they, they, um, they had already moved and been displaced in Latin America and in Mexico and for the last two, three, four years with all of the different hurricanes that they'd had and the, and, and the earthquakes also. That type of displacement, that economic downturn has led to these efforts, and we need to be more involved. Not only the federal government, but also uh, Governor Abbott has a great opportunity uh, here. If we were to take uh, that we, that the state of Texas is the ninth biggest economy in the world, if it were its own nation, 
we should tap into that leverage and make sure that we have, communicate and have bilateral talks with the governors immediately from uh, our border communities, but also with the president of Mexico so that we can address this at the source, which is the southern border of Mexico and figure out how we need to address this so that it doesn't continue being a problem. We also need to challenge Congress. Both Democrats and Republicans need to factor this in. We need to challenge Congress that they pass effective immigration reform policies that will address 80 to 85 percent of the issues that we're seeing right now. And that's not taking place. There's enough finger pointing going on that we just need to make sure now that things get done. The federal government and Congress has a duty, a fiduciary duty to protect our borders, and they should. And they should stop making this one of those drum beats for their bases one way or the other. And we need to come to reasonable solutions with respect to immigration policies. Anybody that's an immigration attorney will tell you that we've needed immigration reform policies for over 30 years now. And it's time that Congress act. Yeah, uh, Representative, and that's been an issue through several administrations. But let me ask you about the images at the border. They've been just horrific from agents on horseback appearing to whip migrants to just the overall living conditions uh, there. The Border Patrol now, of course, not in the area. Yeah. Uh, how do you think the Biden administration has handled all of this? Well, could, um, they have been more receptive, definitely. Um, this is one thing that from late January, when we were seeing these migrant surges, as a Democrat on the border, we have to be more conservative with respect to um, the positions that we take on, on, on certain legislation. And this is one of those times that I differed from the White House and I kept stressing to them what, that we needed immediate attention because otherwise then the opposing party would take this as their cue to make sure that they exploited the deficiencies that we now see. Could we have been um, faster in responding? Yes, we could have. Now, I would like to say that I have seen nothing but professionalism and a dedication not only of uh, Border Patrol, but also the DPS troopers that have been out there. I am cognizant of the photos uh, of some of the video that's going out there, but I think they were all treated humanely and I don't believe that there were whips. I mean, you can see that it's not actually a, a whip, but that's neither here nor there. We're at that point now where I think we need to stop pointing fingers. I think that um, law enforcement, whether it was state or federal, um, they did what they could and they were very, very responsive, especially I mean, we're talking within less than a week, we were seeing exponentially grow from 2,000 to 4,000 to 7,000, and eventually it got to over 15,000 migrants that were down there. And if it weren't for DPS and the National Guard coming down here and assisting um, Border Patrol, we could have had a very different outcome down there under the bridge. And I want to clarify what I said earlier. Border Patrol agents on horseback are no longer in that area. And State Representative Eddie Morales, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Staying on the border, some migrants were sent back to Haiti immediately, while others are beginning the process of staying in the U.S. Dallas attorney Eric Cedillo explains what happens next for the thousands who went to Del Rio. Let's welcome Dallas attorney and friend of the show, Eric Cedillo, to the program. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks Thank for having you. me on. So let's start with the crisis along the border town of Del Rio. Some migrants are being sent back immediately while others begin the process by staying in the United States. How does this work with uh, there being such a large number of people involved? 
That's a very good question, and one in which uh, I think the Biden administration is going to need to answer to. As, as we all know, uh, Donald Trump started a, uh, a practice under uh, the Health and Human Safety Code, uh, Chapter uh, 42 or Title 42. And what that does is it utilizes COVID as a pandemic to exclude people from coming into the country, including those who are seeking asylum. Now, many of the folks who are Haitians may have good claims for asylum, but uh, maybe uh, they are returning them back to Haiti without giving them an opportunity to process. And that can be really problematic. If, if there are some good claims for asylum and they're not being allowed to be had, uh, that could be problematic for the Biden administration. So uh, we'll see how that plays itself out. Let's move now to the audit of the 2020 elections in the state. What legally really happens next? Well, it looks like the Secretary of State is moving on that issue. They're going to, uh, to audit those four counties that they mentioned. Uh, you know, it's, it's real interesting that that comes in, in conjunction or, or after a conversation that Abbott had with uh, the former President Trump. But it's one in which uh, it looks like they're going to audit those by the Secretary of State. I don't know that they're going to be bringing in any third parties like they did in Arizona. Uh, to, to audit. So uh, we'll see how that plays itself out. But uh, as everybody's mentioned, uh, there appears to be no issues with respect to fraud in the past. Everybody who's part of it has, has made that same uh, statement. So unfortunately, I think this is unfortunately part of the, of the big uh, lie pushed by many that, uh, that would maintain that there's some problem, uh, you know, across the board with our elections when there really isn't. So, uh, so unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with that and uh, see how uh, the actual audits uh, come out. So, uh, uh, Eric, is redistricting time. Uh, is all, all these maps probably going to end up in court, particularly we'll see what happens with congressional and, and Senate. It, there's already talk about legal challenges to the Senate map. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that there's going to be legal challenges that uh, are eventually going to make their way up to the, uh, to the Supreme Court. And unfortunately, with the uh, dilution of of the Voting Rights Act, I think, uh, unfortunately, it may be a tougher road to hoe than it has in the past. It's going to be our first, uh, you know, redistricting since uh, the Voting Rights Act was was uh, imparted over 50 years ago that uh, uh, that there won't be that uh, possibility for preclearance or that uh, we have some sort of a federal governmental entity looking over what it is we're doing with respect to redistricting. We know in the past there's been allegations of discrimination. Uh, so there's no doubt in, in my mind that uh, this will make its way into the courts and, and ultimately before the uh, Supreme Court. And then, uh, you know, from some of the other cases they've been dealing with, I think uh, they've got this new totality of the circumstances uh, line that they're, they're kind of towing. So it's going to be a tough road to hoe, I think, in terms of asserting discrimination without there being some sort of, uh, you know, something that happens at the federal level with respect to the VRA and, and and perhaps new laws that uh, reinstitute preclearance. You know, Eric, an earlier guest talked about the difficulty in, in, in coming up with an immigration reform policy. Why has the issue along the border, issues related to immigration, been so tough for Democratic and Republican presidents? What's the problem? I think it's so hard. So many people see uh, immigration, they lump it into one bucket. Of course, what we're seeing uh, at the border today viscerally is, is challenging for many in terms of how, uh, how the Haitians are, are being treated uh, in some circumstances, while others maintain that, uh, you know, it's a situation where we've got to have control over our borders. And they lump that in with uh, immigration uh, overall. Uh, there's huge differences in our policies, how we treat people coming in for the first time, you know, versus potentially 
dreamers, for example, who've been here you know, since they were toddlers. But lumping that all into a single immigration uh, platform is difficult, difficult for people to see. So we've got one side on the right, we're maintaining that there's a lot of bad folks and we should just do away with immigration. And others on the left who, who maintain that, uh, that we should be helping you know, certain elements. So I think that's the, the big problem is, is getting past the politics. So we'll see what happens with respect to uh, what the Democrats are doing with uh, what's going on in the Senate with re reconciliation and potentially getting some form of, of maybe DACA relief uh, advanced in the in the reconciliation bill. See if that might be something that happens. If it if it doesn't, unfortunately, we've got the primary or we've got the uh, midterms next year, and that's going to be a situation where I think immigration is just going to fall by the wayside until uh, you know probably the following year. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Attorney Eric Cedillo. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks to State Senator Beverly Powell, State Rep Eddie Morales, Michael Lee, and Eric Cedillo for joining the show this week. You can stay up to date on everything Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.